0: Hello, my name is Jason Ward. I'm the vicar of a small church called St. Mary's in Chatterston, which is in Derby. And it's my, uh, it was my privilege uh, to do the Bible readings at Church Society's Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference uh, in early 2020. We didn't manage to record the talks for one reason or another. So uh, here I am re-recording and I'm going to pray right now that uh, what we hear from the Apostles in the book of acts would truly warm our hearts as we seek to preach to the heart let's pray father in heaven we uh it is our prayer that as we come to your word and we think clearly about what the apostles taught and how they preached not just to the mind but also to the emotions the heart lord would we learn from the greats and uh, and in our own lives and apply this this word and in our own teaching lord whether that's preaching or bible study or whatever would we learn not simply to preach to the mind but also speak and preach to the heart for jesus sake and in the power of the holy spirit we ask you father amen amen so the conference was called preaching to the heart And uh, the series of Bible readings were all taken from Acts, Uh, the great sermons, three of the great sermons in the book of Acts from three different apostles, but which could be classed in some senses as failures. We'll see why as we go through. But I want to suggest as we go through these that we want to follow. As preachers, as teachers of God's word, we want to follow in the footsteps of these failures. We're going to start with our first fabulous failure, and that is Peter and his sermon uh, at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read from the ESV. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapour of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this jesus delivered up to the according uh, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it for david says concerning him i saw the lord always before me For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. So, Peter at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 from verse 14 to 38. If you're watching the video, you can probably tell my teens were in the 1980s, which is uh, right now very popular with nostalgia. Uh, So, uh, well, I'm in my middle ages. So of course, anything nostalgic, Like the remake of classic TV series from my childhood, The Day of the Triffids, usually gets a thumb up uh, from me. Uh, The 2009 remake uh, was recently put on Amazon and I didn't care how much uh, the critics hated it. I loved it. Bit of nostalgia from my childhood. And it did the whole the human race has had its day thing brilliantly, I thought. All those dark forests filled with the of these uh, heartless, evil triffids on the hunt for man flesh. It had a world falling apart. It had anarchy, desperation, suffering. Everything that made the 1980s wonderful. And it reminded me of the general election that we recently had. Bear with me on this one. Uh, During the last election, Feelings were running pretty high, Uh, politics was pretty polarised and just before Christmas there in 2019 it got a little tetchy in the UK with everyone predicting the end of the world if the other side won. Now when it turned out to be Boris Johnson's night and the Conservatives won. I watched my Facebook feed go absolutely nuts. There were those for whom the day spelled utter disaster and they writhed in pain and in fury. For them, it was the end. Humanity was doomed. It was like the Triffids had 10 Downing Street. A smaller number of Facebook friends gloated with great satisfaction. If you were a Triffid when the meteor storm hit, and everyone was blinded. It would be your day. The rest of us might be less impressed, but you're on top. It is your day. It is the day of the Triffids. If you're a Tory on election night, it would be your day. If you're a Carbonite, not so much. But you're as a Tory. It's your day. If it's your day, you're in charge. You're in the Ascendant. Your team wins. Everyone gets cake. Everyone else is doomed. Their day is, has gone. It's, their time is over. They're dinosaurs. It is your day. Everyone else is in trouble. So imagine the day of Pentecost. You wake up in a really good mood. You've taken a holiday. Uh, It's your day. You have a lazy breakfast, a a leisurely stroll into town to pick up a nice bit of mutton for dinner, maybe some dates and apricots to go with it. Folk are in a great mood as you go saying good morning and happy Pentecost to everyone. You're having quite the pleasant Jerusalem morning uh, when you come across a crowd. Uh, Thankfully, it's not an angry crowd on this occasion, which is good news. It's it's a happy crowd. It's an entertained crowd. There seems to be a street performance or something. You can't quite see what's happening, but you can hear. And there's a bunch of folk have spilled out from a large ground floor building. They're leaping around and dancing and praising and prophesying. You can hear Aramaic, maybe a bit of Greek. You look to your left. And there seems to be some folk that look like they may maybe from Egypt, uh, uh, Egypt. And you can hear them talking. It sounds like Egyptian. And they're pointing and smiling as if they can understand what's being said as well. And someone shouts, How come we can all understand these Galileans in our own language? Someone near the shout fronts, uh, uh, shout, they, they shout out, You know these northerners? Uh, a liquid breakfast. And a chaser to wash it down. Mm. And then one of the merry band stands up and they say, No. No, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. No, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Your time is over. Today is the day of the Lord the day of Jesus Christ and you pause because you remember which way you voted one month ago. You voted Barabbas and now Jesus is raised from the dead and sat on the throne of God. Today is Jesus' day. Your time is over. That's the thrust of what Peter is saying here. And I'd like us to go through Luke's summary of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost and see how he says it, how Peter announces the Holy Spirit has come and that this is a sign that the day of the Lord has now come. And then I'd like to ask how that might impact on us, um, both as Christians today, as we just meditate on this personally for ourselves, but then also how might that shape our teaching or our preaching in the future? Peter's sermon breaks up into two sections. The first is a quote from Joel. That shows that the day of the Lord is now here. It's today. The second quote shows from David's Psalms that the day of the Lord is actually Jesus' day. Because Jesus is the Lord uh, for whom this is his day. Okay, so first, Joel shows that the day of the Lord is here. Okay, it's the day of Pentecost. All the Jerusalem Christians, probably numbering about 120 according to chapter 1, they're gathered in the one place. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them, enabling them to prophesy the mighty works of God in various languages. They pour out into the street. Peter stands up before the crowd that gathers. He quickly dismisses the idea that all 120 of them have managed to get drunk over breakfast. Instead he tells them no. This is a very specific miracle which marks a very specific moment in history. For thousands of years to this point the Holy Spirit's only ever usually rested on the most holy, most special, unique people. Folk you would think of Samuel or David or Elijah. By and large miracles and prophecies are rare. And the people who bring such miracles and prophecies they come at a times of unique blessing or times of very particular warning i wonder if uh, incidentally perhaps the magnitude of this pentecost miracle is lost on us a little because we're used to having the holy spirit as if it's normal we know what it is to be constantly repenting regularly being amazed by god's word we expect people to be saved we think it's normal we live post pentecost but we need to be clear it's not normal until this moment in acts it did not happen Uh, maybe to one person uh, a couple of people sometimes they experienced god's holy spirit but not all of god's people all the time experiencing God's Holy Spirit. But here, as, as as everyone could plainly see, there's at least 120 people. Men and women, high and low. And they've all been touched by the Spirit to prophesy and praise God. And Peter says this historic moment means that we are firmly in Joel chapter 2 territory. We're in, so read verse 17 and 18. In the last days, every one of God's people will have God's Holy Spirit. Your sons and daughters, young and old, servants and slaves, every member of God's people will have the Spirit. I note the repetition that Joel uses so that we're clear as to the scope of this outpouring. No one is left out. If you're God's people, whoever you are, you will have the Holy Spirit. And the crowd sees this happening in real time. 120 of the most ragtag bunch of Galileans and assorted others. And Joel says, prophesy, vision, dreams, miracles. They'll no longer be limited to a few precious people like Elijah. All of God's people will have the Holy Spirit to the max in the last days. You might want to note in verse 18, That Peter adds to Joel's prophecy. He repeats the phrase, and they shall prophesy. So it's twice, he says, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now he's not misremembering Joel, it's for emphasis. He's pointing out for the crowd's benefit, this is happening right now. All flesh has the spirit and is prophesying. Where are we? We're in Joel. And the crowd sees these 120 people prophesying together, all of them with the Holy Spirit to the max, and the conclusion is unavoidable. We must be in the last days. But Joel's prophecy didn't stop there. Because he then goes on to say that if you're in the last days, that must mean you're about to run smack bang into the last day, the very last day, the day of the Lord. Uh, Like the run up to Christmas only goes mad because soon you run smack bang into Christmas day itself and you're not ready for it. The last days signal the day of the Lord. To quote one person, the outpouring of God's spirit signals the outpouring of God's wrath. It's about to come. So Christians having the Holy Spirit is not normal. It's a miracle. It's a warning. When we see someone born again and we see the Holy Spirit at work in their lives, Peter says that's only possible because we are in the last days. Each soul saved is a tick of the doomsday clock. The Spirit is the sign that time is running out. Verse 19 There will be wonders and signs. In heaven and earth, blood, fire, and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The pouring out of the, of the Spirit at Pentecost is a countdown to the very last day, a day of judgment on evil, a day of rescue for his people. Now at this point the crowd might easily turn around and say Ha ha! You had me worried there. I thought for a minute the day of the Lord was actually coming. You're absolutely right of course. All these people prophesying. Yeah that sounds like Joel chapter 2 is coming true. I was really scared for a minute. But the signs and the wonders. The sun turning to darkness and stuff. That's not happened yet has it? Has it? And that leads Peter to his next point. Yes, it has. The day of the Lord is here and it is apparent it is Jesus' day. The day of the Lord is Jesus' day. That's David's psalm's point. Uh, I was once asked to give a model evangelistic talk uh, to some student Bible teachers. Um, My advice, uh, never accept an invitation to give a model talk. You're on a hiding to nothing. I genuinely thought it was going pretty well. Everyone was still awake. That's a good sign. Um, Then I took some questions. The first question was, what were my main headings? They'd been taught that every talk should have headings. And my talk didn't have any. It rather went downhill after that. Now you may have noticed, but Peter doesn't get the memo either. No headings. He just moves seamlessly from his point We have the Holy Spirit, so the day of the Lord is here. To his second point, Jesus is the Lord whose day it is. He doesn't have headings. But although there's no headings, there is a marker that Peter is moving on. Because Peter seems to pause and says for a second time, Men of Israel, hear these words. That is his heading. Hear these words. Verse 22. So the crowd perks up and thinks, "Okay, he's got us on the whole the Holy Spirit has arrived thing. But now he's going to tackle those missing the signs and wonders in Joel's prophecy thing. And the first words that Peter uttered at this point must have been like a punch to the gut. Because he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with... Mighty works and wonders and signs. Oh boy. Now you might argue not all of the signs and wonders have happened yet. The sun has gone dark, sure, and there were loads of signs and miracles. But what about the blood and fire and stuff? But Peter's point is this. Most of the signs have happened. Jesus is a man attested by those very signs and wonders. And that means we are firmly in the realm of the last days. All that's left is blood, fire and a red moon. And that doesn't sound good. Now I'm going to argue that this section of Peter's sermon is a chiasm. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's also in your handouts. Apologies if you're listening Uh, to just the audio. But the chiasm, and I'll explain it in a moment, the chiasm argues that Jesus is raised from the dead, which means that Jesus is the Lord whose judgment day is now upon us. It is imminent. Peter starts and finishes this sandwich uh, with God raising Jesus uh, when they killed him. You can see it there uh, right at the top. Uh, Verse 23, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. By the way, I think this is why we can't apply this speech directly to people today. Um, Peter could say to them that they were genuinely there on the day that Jesus was killed. You crucified him. He could say that to them. We can't say it today. Interestingly, in Peter's sermon to Cornelius the Gentile and in Paul's sermons to various other Gentiles, neither of them use this accusation that you are guilty of the blood of Jesus. You could argue a theological point that had we been there, we would have joined in with the crowds. Absolutely. But we weren't. And we didn't. So this is a a particular sermon for a particular time. Here's the first part: You killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. Okay, so let's move through the argument. After the accusation of killing Messiah, uh, there are two separate quotes. There we are, just on the uh, on the screen, just proving that the accusation "you crucified him" is at both ends of this uh, little section. But then, as we move on, uh, in Moving in towards the middle of the sandwich, um, we see the accusation of killing Messiah and then we move to two separate quotes from David's Psalms. Let's just circle that one there. There's David's Psalm. There's another one of David's Psalms. Uh, All of which, uh, with uh, apologies to any vegans, uh, drives us to the meat of the sandwich which is right there in the middle. Jesus is the Christ back from the dead. Okay, so if we're going to step back now and see this day of the Lord's sandwich, it goes a little bit like this. We start with bread right at the top there. Today is not the first end of day's miracle and you've seen it. You saw Jesus' signs and you rejected and you killed him. You crucified and killed him, but God has raised him back. That's the first bit of bread. Let's butter the bread uh, uh, with uh, David's Psalms. The reason God has raised him back is because, as King David pointed out, God cannot let his Holy One rot in the grave. Let's put some steak in the middle of that sandwich. David is not talking about himself when he says God is going to raise up the Holy One from the grave. He's talking about Messiah, the Christ. Let's put some more butter on it. Always put butter on your steak. Um, The reason we have the Holy Spirit Verse 33, the reason we have the Holy Spirit and you don't is because, as David prophesied, it is Jesus who is raised from the dead. It is Jesus who is the Christ. It is Jesus who is the Lord giving his people the Holy Spirit. Jesus who is ruling in heaven now, getting ready to have his enemies crushed. Let's put some bread on it again. Um, There we are, verse 36. Therefore... With Jesus as God's Holy One, the Christ, the Lord, who will crush his enemies on the day of the Lord, you are in a heap of trouble because you crucified him and these are the last days. What we've got then here is a very elegant argument as to who Jesus must be. The miracles he's performed, his resurrection from the dead, the fact that he, he, poured out God's Holy Spirit onto his followers after his resurrection and only onto his followers all point to the fact that according to the Old Testament Jesus is the Christ which means we are in the last days and the ones who rejected Jesus are now in profoundly great danger. It is a sophisticated It is a logical, it is a powerful and it is a clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit argument. And it hurts. It hurts emotionally. Verse 38. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's answer goes right back to Joel. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And of course the Lord is Jesus. Verse 38. Verse 38. Repent and be baptised, says Peter. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins... And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pause there for a moment. Take a step back and breathe. How might what Peter says here impact on us today? Maybe as we're trying to rest or recover or be refreshed. And how might it shape our teaching and our preaching in the future? Well, here's a few thoughts that I would uh, like to share with you that I've had. First, you've been given the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And that is no small thing. You're one of a very select group, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're up there with Samuel, with David, with Elijah. However exhausted or worn out you are right now, God has truly chosen and loved and set you apart. You are a friend of God. You belong with the company of heaven. You belong with those first disciples. And that is pretty wonderful. Be glad. You have the Holy Spirit. Second, if you've been given the Holy Spirit, Christian that must mean that you and I and this whole world are in the last days. I wonder if you've heard of the Doomsday Clock. Every year, 15 Nobel laureates, along with various experts in the sciences, try to put a number on how much danger humanity is in uh, from nuclear attack and climate disaster and so on. They met on the 23rd of January 2020 and decided it was no longer two minutes to midnight, which it had been for years, but it was one minute and 40 seconds to doomsday. I guess that's because of who's in various leadership positions around the world. I'm not sure what they would put it at now that we've got coronavirus sweeping the world. But as Christians we know it's worse than that. The hammer to strike the bell has already been pulled back. It's no seconds to midnight. Peter says here there's not much left for God to do. The Spirit's been poured out. The signs of the end are almost complete. And at any moment, the last few signs could be given, the the, the moon turning to blood, for example, and that would be it. We'd be done. It's all over. So perhaps this is a good time to check that We are personally ready and that our priorities are in order. Are we living like we are ready for the return of our loved master? Or have we, even those of us who are Christian ministers, have we become a little attached to this world? Maybe negligent in our warnings. Uh, What about as preachers? What might we take away from Peter's sermon here? Well first I want to note that Peter's sermon is rich with theology and heavy with reasoning. uh, Heavy on the Old Testament and it's not in the least bit dumbed down. But he's not preaching to some middle class uh, London elite. Uh, This is a random crowd off the street. You could say hey wait a minute they're still Jews and have a certain amount of biblical learning. Yeah absolutely but still. This is quite a complex sermon, isn't it? There's no jokes, there's no illustrations, and yet it's still gripping, gripping stuff. So perhaps our sermons don't have to be simple. Perhaps our sermons don't need to have an average number of jokes, three alliterative points in a simple structure. Maybe there's room to stretch people. What we can't lack, however, is passion for Jesus Christ. That's here in spades. Jesus. Paul, Peter does not pull his punches here. He's very clear. He has a passion for Jesus Christ. Here's another encouragement. Our evangelism does not need to be spectacular. Now I know Luke wants us to be impressed with the day of Pentecost. And we are. 3,000 souls are saved. And yet... Without being two glass half empty, it could have been higher, couldn't it? Let's be honest, this is a pivotal moment in history. It was an astonishing miracle. A spirit-inspired message. And you've got 120 disciples just filled with the Holy Spirit. They knew Jesus themselves. And they were telling tens of thousands of people who'd also seen Jesus or heard of Jesus' miracles. And they were all there for Pentecost, all aware of the rumours that Jesus had come back from the dead. And yet in God's wisdom, it's not 30,000, it's not 300,000 that are saved, it's 3,000. It reminds me that growing the church is hard work, a slow work and a work of God. We scatter the seed, only three out of four soils uh, say no though and only one says yes only a few will believe warns jesus so uh, let's say you've got an evangelistic event and it doesn't go so well let's take some encouragement from the day of pentecost it's okay even on the day of pentecost when god gives the early church an absolute rocket boost to get it going and a spectacular miracle unprecedented in history never to be repeated, even then, it is a slow, patient work. 3,000. It's amazing. But it's, it's not all of them. There are tens of thousands there that day. Evangelism is a slow, patient work. Well, those are my thoughts. Uh, perhaps you have some of your own Let's have a moment of quiet uh, to pray. Thank God for Peter and uh, what he says here about our risen saviour. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Let's pray quietly as we close. Thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing people to know Jesus. And thank you for Peter's sermon, inspired to preach to the heart, to repent and believe. May we take the lessons, Lord, of what the Holy Spirit's coming means, of how how that puts us in the last days, and how we need to be ready and warn people to be ready thank you lord god for the the encouragement that we we don't have to simplify our sermons down to a single point that a two-year-old could understand and thank you lord for the encouragement our evangelism does not have to be spectacular or the numbers phenomenal for you to be at work about your business amen